0: Hello and welcome to another episode of No Such Thing as a Fish, a weekly podcast coming to you from four undisclosed locations in the UK. My name is Dan Schreiber. I am sitting here with Anna Tashinsky, Andrew Hunter-Murray and James Harkin. And once again, we have gathered round our microphones with our four favourite facts from the last seven days. And in no particular order, here we go. Starting with fact number one, and that is Anna.
1: My fact this week is that 19 states in the USA have banned the banning of clotheslines. (laughs) it's (laughs)
2: <laughs> it's <laughs> a double band. does that mean clotheslines as in things you put clothes on or is this like a wrestling term where you kind of is, almost is, decapitate someone surely
3: the wrestling move is covered by other legislation <laughs> <laughs> oh, but in
1: wrestling are you allowed to strangle people with a clothesline no well yeah you are you
2: are i mean you know it's that's a, modern wrestling it's a metaphorical clothesline that i'm talking it's a about forearm
0: yeah, yeah. You open no. up your arm, you run towards them and you hit them across the neck oh. with your arm and that's the clothesline. It's like an, um, it's a type of
2: tackle in American football, I think, and then they
3: turned it into a wrestling move. Interesting. See, Uh-oh. I knew about the, you know, sometimes someone will turn up with a steel chair or hit someone else with a table, but I didn't know there was a laundry rack or a laundry line that could also be drafted into service in wrestling matches, if this makes more yeah. sense.
1: Me neither. Of all my research on clotheslines did not come across the wrestling move. Uh, <laughs> stuck to clotheslines themselves... And they're quite controversial, turns out. So a lot of rental associations, housing associations ban them because they're sort of unsightly. They've got a bad image. They sort of were historically associated with poverty in the 50s when people were getting electronic washing machines and dryers. So it was like, if you hung your clothes out, it showed you're not in a posh neighbourhood. And so lots of housing associations say, don't do it. But of course, with the environmental movement, everyone's gone, what are you talking about? It's much better to hang your clothes out on a clothesline. And so uh, about 2012, there was this big movement and a bunch of states, Arizona, Maryland, Massachusetts, Wisconsin, etc., said you're not allowed to ban them
0: anymore. It is weird when you think about it, though. It's the only thing that's really intimate to us that we just take out of the house to show everyone. You know, we're not showing it to them on purpose, but I don't hang my books outside or the contents of my fridge for people to see what my diet's like. Yeah, but you've got to stop washing your books. (laughs) That's just odd. You know, we hang underwear outside. I get it. I get the uh, banning of it. Yeah, but then
2: after Second World War, when they were trying to get more women in the workplace, it was kind of a new form of modern living where... You know, everything was done by machines and stuff like this, especially in America. And so, um, and also they wanted to sell electricity. So they kind of thought that really it's almost a patriotic duty to have a machine doing all your washing rather than your wife doing all your washing uh, mm. in America. And if you had it hanging outside, it was like a symbol that you were part of the old times when people used to do that. You weren't part of the new times. But it's slightly different in the UK because uh, less than half of people in the UK have a tumble dryer, whereas in America it's like, I don't know, like 80% or something like that. Yeah, it's yeah. huge. So, yeah. Hello, I,
1: I was a money-saving expert in the UK, and maybe this was you, Dan. There was someone who said, I've just moved to a new place and I'm the only person who hangs my laundry on the balcony. Is it okay? And the first response was, not acceptable at all. Who wants to see your shabby clothes hanging out on the balcony? Do you think the architect envisioned that? clothes on balconies are the same as broken cars in front gardens have some pride in where you live
3: i really like that uh so this gets called the right to dry which is a catchy phrase um but and like anna says most lots of states nearly half of them have banned it but utah hasn't utah has passed laws which allow local authorities to forbid people from banning clotheslines but they have not passed a law themselves so they have legalized the banning wow. of the ban but they have not just banned banning <laughs> oh, directly so confused
1: <laughs> <laughs> sorry they, they've legalised the banning of the ban they've said it's okay to ban oh, people from banning them
3: they've legalised they've they've passed laws saying local authorities in Utah can ban bans God. but they haven't stepped in themselves and banned <laughs> bans directly it, it feels like you can remove at least two of the bans from that sentence <laughs> I'm not sure I've tried it doesn't work it's, it's really? exactly
0: as I said it. oh yeah <laughs> Wow. Do you know the most powerful uh, room in America is a laundry room. The White the House, Office. like yeah. Yeah. Well, it used to be. It used to be a laundry room. So Franklin Roosevelt actually moved the Oval Office from where it used to be. It was used to. It used to be located in the center of the White House. And then he preferred to have it put more by windows, and there was an obvious room for it to go to, and that's the room where they used to hang all of the laundry in and dry it up there, really? and he had that removed, and then the Oval Office was placed there.
1: Oh, it d- doesn't smell nearly as nice now, presumably. <laughs> that would have been what attracted him to the room. Very disappointing <laughs> when they took the clean laundry out.
0: When you see that centre shot of a president behind the desk, they have to crop it, because just next to him there's a clothes horse. <laughs> it's just <laughs> packed with yeah. everyone's washing. Ah, uh, clothes horse. Do you guys call it a clothes horse? Or that no.
3: kind of
2: thing, what do you call it, Andy? I, I just, call just I a laundry rack laundry rack, Anna, what do you call them?
1: Call it a clothes ass <laughs> <laughs> okay, Mine's a bit smaller than your average one, so I don't know.
2: too yeah. i' I call them a uh, clothes maiden, right yeah, and yeah. I was googling this because I wanted to know where the word came from, and then it from my Google, it seemed to imply that this is not what anyone else calls it. I've never heard and it's
0: Maiden. <laughs> it's really definitely weird. the sexiest version.
2: Well, it's like so it. strange. It's like, you know, when you have these words that you think are so common and everyone uses them and then you say them and then everyone's like, what on earth are you talking about? <laughs> well, yeah. this is it. But Maiden is like uh, what people in Lancashire would call, I think what Dan called a clothes horse and Andy called a clothes rack. And we gloss over what Anna called it. Uh, <laughs> and I think, I couldn't find out why they're called Maidens, but I reckon it's because... In a spinning machine, you would have two bits of wood that held the kind of spool, and they were called a maiden, or they were called maidens, and they would stick upwards, and then they would have a bar coming across them, and then you would hang things on there. And I reckon that that's why they call it, because obviously Lancashire was like a spinning area. Oh, that
1: makes that's sense. Cool. Area, yeah. That's cool. Really it wasn't cool. the case that historically unmarried women used to stand <laughs> with their arms outstretched for hours on end with clothes draped over them. It was a simpler time
3: and a happier time. <laughs> Um, Do you know why laundry smells nice? Uh, Specifically, air-dried. Because you put soap in your clothes. The soap helps, definitely. But um, th- that's specifically, I think, the difference between air-dried, you know, line-dried towels uh, supposedly smell nicer than, um, than machine-dried towels or whatever. And scientists last year published a-, a paper examining at the molecular level why these smell so damn good. And um, they got a load of samples and they used ultra-purified water and then they hung the things out to dry and then they sealed them in a bag for 15 hours, once they were dry, and then sampled the air that was being given off by these things and compared the chemical profiles and la la la. And um, after things have been out in the sun, they emit specific organic molecules. uh, And one of them is called octanal. uh, And one of them is called, I think it's pronounced non-anal, non-anal, but it's spelled non-anal. Non-anal smells of roses, apparently. And it's possible that exposure to ozone outdoors transforms these chemicals and makes them smell lovely.
2: Non-anal wow. smells of roses. Yeah. Do you yeah. think um if it was called anything other than non-anal it would still smell
3: as sweet? <laughs> <laughs> I understand that reference. <laughs> Thank you. Good. Yep. <laughs> um. It's from Annika Redditor. Um, it's not. It's the final line of Annika <laughs> no.
1: You know, you were saying, James, that it was the electricity movement, hmm. this push for electricity that meant people weren't supposed to hang their clothes out anymore. Do you know who the face of electricity was in the 1950s? Um, not Edison.
0: He was dead. Long gone, 50s, wasn't yeah.
1: Yeah, Elvis? his face looked awful by that point. Is
0: it like a John Wayne? Is it like a famous person? Or... Yes,
1: actually, you're really close with John Wayne. Think of the budget version of John Wayne. John oh, um, I
0: know. Reagan.
1: Yeah, it was Reagan. Was it? Yeah. <laughs> was it? Very strong. Oh, uh, how sad that I said budget version <laughs> of John Wayne and you did get Reagan from that. Poor so guy. he must have
0: loved the Oval Office. He would have felt right at home in there yeah. with all the laundry smells. yeah.
1: Maybe that's why he went for president. Um, (laughs) Although, actually, no, he wouldn't have liked it because he was all about anti-clothesline. So he was the face of the Live Better Electrically campaign. And there are great adverts you can watch online which show him with his wife and his child uh, sitting around a table and his wife just talking about how great it is that she doesn't have to slave over various things anymore because she now has an electric souffle maker, an electric coffee percolator, an electric combined toaster and grill. A lot of stuff that we do not have anymore as standard in our homes. That's so
2: cool. You know what I would have done if I was the advertising executive for that? Uh, I would have had him with a weapon which fired bolts of electricity that turned things electric, so they'd be like an old kettle, and he'd get his weapon and fire some electricity at it, and it would turn into an electric kettle, and he would be called Ronald Ray Gun.
3: That is good. That is wow. Yeah. there's a career in marketing and advertising <laughs> opening out before us and I like to see it
1: <laughs> it's hard to see you go but you're going
2: on to um, <laughs> I can imagine you guys sending me off a one-way <laughs> ticket to Saatchi and Saatchi and then me arriving at the front door and them going sorry we don't know what
3: you're on about we've just given you a big piece of slate with Ronald Reagan written on the front of it <laughs> Um, oh, yeah. Speaking of electric and uh, laundry, you can now get a smart clothes peg, which is pretty exciting. Oh, that mm. is exciting. Yeah, What's it do? It detects UV light and humidity and temperature, and then it tells you when it's going to rain. Um, mm.
0: And it also... Is it you. just one, or do you need to put it on each of your... I can't different... imagine
3: that you'd need to buy <laughs> <laughs> 100. We've got like 40 <laughs> pegs
0: yelling at you. Ah, it's gone! <laughs> I don't think,
3: yeah, because it texts you when the clothes are dry. So if you've got 150 of these, I think you get 150 texts saying your clothes are dry. So Yeah, because if one of your clothes is dry, there's a decent chance the rest of them are at least nearly dry. Exactly, unless your garden is so big or your laundry <laughs> is so extensive. That's really cool. Yeah. Do you, well, yeah. I
2: wonder if um, hackers could get into those smart, because usually when you have a smart thing, the hackers yeah, can true. get into it. Yeah, so. true. What, and what find out what kind
1: do? of knickers you wear?
2: Well, you know, the internet. That's <laughs> yeah. the kind of thing the internet's into, isn't it? I've read. Are all right? No.
1: But I think some clothes do take much longer to dry than others, so I think you would need one for each item, Oh, gosh,
2: Anna, I, surely you just put the smart peg on the thing that takes longest to dry.
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, God, I've wasted so much money on a thousand smart
2: pegs. <laughs> do you, when you're doing the laundry and you put stuff outside, you just go out and you take one... Pe- oh, this is dry. I'll take yeah. this in.
1: Every five minutes, (laughs) not going to the cottage.
0: You know, uh, washing detergent can be quite dangerous in war. So the army actually has a list of banned detergents that they are not allowed to use because they contain optical (laughs) brighteners. (laughs) So imagine you, you wash... You're you saying but if you use Daz and your clothes are whiter than white, you're going to be <laughs> spotted in your costume. <laughs> no, no this, is, this is all to do with sort of, you know, infrared and so on. You know, if you have um, optical brighteners in it, it'll go slightly fluorescent, your clothing, and that can yeah. be picked up mm. by night vision goggles and so on. So they have a very strict list of what you're allowed to wash your clothes in. Wow. So funny.
1: But that is another idea for James to take to Satchi and Satchi. I think for the next Daz ad, I think so bright that you will die in, in <laughs> a war situation. Oh yeah, so the
0: yeah. ad is just one. There's like 50 of them, and they all get gunned down except for the one guy who then holds up a Daz box. and says, "Don't oh, get wait shot." A minute. He's the one who
2: does get He's... shot. Oh, the Daz guy is dead. Yeah, Daz so man's dead. What you actually yeah. need is loads of like people in a battle, loads of different sides, and then they all want to give up. And so they all get a white flag, but nine of them are really dirty white flags because they don't use Daz. But then one person has used Daz and they have a really shiny white flag and they're the ones that survive. That is good.
0: That is genuinely good. Is the, is the, you know, white flag means I, sur- I surrender. I surrender. Yeah, is a yeah. dirty flag mean fuck you? What are you going to do? <laughs> It's, what are you going to do? <laughs> clear signal. I don't
2: deserve clemency because I have no hygiene. <laughs> That's what it means.
1: I've used this flag so many times, it's dirty. <laughs> so I'm, I'm not
3: <laughs> I don't uh, think Daz have advertised on British TV for some years now, but they, <laughs> if they've been saving up in their war chest for the next big campaign, this is it. Yeah, <laughs>
0: This is the agree. thing. Um,
3: you know um, who I can't believe this fact that i'm about to say but queen victoria had a special train for her laundry
0: (laughs) Okay. Okay. so
3: there used to be a royal laundry in richmond uh in london or did one and a half tons of laundry a day so not all hers it was you know palace (laughs) yeah (laughs) she was large by the end of her life though it's true, but and she wore a lot of layers. Um, yeah, <laughs> but um, and basically wherever she was, apart from if she was in Scotland, which would have been insane for the laundry to come down from there, but even if she was on the Isle of Wight or if she was at um Windsor or or you know L- her London Palace, or Buckingham Palace, I guess, um, the railway handed over all these items, and I've seen sources saying, and I, this is the thing I really can't believe that it was a minute special miniature train which took her <laughs> laundry. But come on, she. She would have had to build a special railway line, like a special narrow-gauge railway line for a miniature train with her pants. And I cannot (laughs) believe that.
1: She should have just got a washing machine in both of her palaces. (laughs) Yes. She wouldn't have to to keep shipping it back.
2: All right, Ronald Reagan. (laughs) Uh, there was speaking of railways, uh we as a group have discussed the underground railroad before a few times, but it 's never been on this i don 't think uh, and that was the um idea that you would take enslaved people from the South America and you would sneak them out of places where slavery was legal, and you would get them to places where they were safe uh, and there is a theory. Or there's a story that you'll see a lot online that people got messages through quilts on the Underground Railroad. Uh, And that is that you would put quilts on washing lines all the way along, and then you would see it. And if it had like a zigzag pattern, you'd know that this was a safe way to go. And if it had like a stripe pattern, it'd be like, we'll turn left here and stuff like that. And this story is all over the internet, but according to National Geographic, quilt historians and Underground Railroad experts have questioned the study's methodology Uh, of the original study and apparently it was invented by um, a woman called Azala McDaniel Williams uh, who was a quilt salesperson in the 1990s (laughs) and wrote a book about quilts and she came up with this idea that this happened in the Underground Railroad and it's not it does make sense that you can send there are examples of people sending messages using washing lines um, that happened in the American Civil War I think but this particular thing I think possibly not true
3: that's a shame it's yeah. a bit it's a it's someone trying to make the quilt a bigger part of world history so. against it's, inequality than it really is
2: it's a bit like what was that mosquito expert that then had wine something timothy c
3: weingard T-
2: yeah Tim- <laughs> yes! she is like the timothy c weingard of quilts <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh i love that man okay it is time for fact number two and that is my fact my fact this week is that Canadian engineers are part of a secret order designed by Rudyard Kipling. <sighs> dun, dun, dun. Yep. <laughs> this, is, uh, this is called the ritual of the calling of an engineer. And it is a secret ritual that most, not all, but most are asked to take part in once they're sort of graduating to be officially a professional engineer and This little ritual um, started in the early 1900s and the people who set it up wanted a really good thing to read out at the ceremony and they couldn't do it on their own. So in 1922, they approached Rudyard Kipling, author of The Jungle Book, and they asked him to write this thing. And it's still going on to this day. You can still see, and this is how you know if a Canadian engineer is part of this secret order, look at the pinky finger and if there's an iron ring on it, they are part of this secret sect. And there's not too much that we know about it, by the way. It is genuinely, they have the ceremony. No friends are allowed to come. No partners are allowed to come. And only a few people have spoken about it publicly, telling us what goes on at these ceremonies. And it all sounds really tame, not dark at all, like really boring. (laughs) I don't know why they don't just tell us about
2: it. Maybe, Dan, the people who came out, like the one or two people who've told you about it and said, oh, yeah, it's
0: really tame. I mean, that's what they want you to think, isn't it?
3: Exactly. Yeah.
0: Very true very true there is a there's a very dangerous cabal going on in canada we need to we need to
3: to break it open it's amazing that they just got the most famous writer in the world at the time as he was to do this for them i guess so powerful aren't they these
2: canadian engineers it's like not surprising they probably could have got anyone really (laughs) yeah
3: you're right
1: My very good friend is an engineer and she worked in Canada for a year last year, the year before last. Um, And so I messaged her about this and she finds it pretty gross. So she's like, it's kind of disgusting because you go into the office and everyone else has this weird ring on their pinky. And she also seemed to have an issue with the fact that um, kind of anyone can get it, according to her. So uh, you don't actually have to be chartered. You only have to have graduated from university in the UK. You don't get anything to your chartered, much longer process, and then you get an A3 certificate. Not the same. So it's kind of like piece of piss. She was like, any engineers can get it, by the way, even the ones who design air conditioning units.
0: Well, Anna, it
3: sounds like your friend is simultaneously very angry (laughs) this exists and very angry she's not part of the club. So Uh,
0: (laughs) Andy, she has a certificate. I don't know what else she needs. (laughs) But <laughs> yeah, um, as you say, Andy, like he was a really popular writer in that time. So it is bizarre that he was writing for them. Yeah,
1: wow. I think I had, someone said, I think he was probably the richest classic author that Britain's ever had. He was oh, so really. bloody successful. He bought himself a mansion with his proceeds. There was one single story which ended up earning £31.5 million Oh that my he God. wrote.
2: No, hang on. Wow. Richard Osman, eat your heart out.
1: That is... <laughs> and that's a short story. That's what he wrote in those days. That
3: can't be in the money of the time because he would have been able to buy the entire country with that.
1: Sorry, it's the equivalent of £31.5 million,
3: £250,000. story?
1: He, well, it's a slight sheet. It's called The Absent-Minded Beggar. And it was the Daily Mail was running a charity fundraising thing as part of an appeal to give money to soldiers in the Boer War. And this is 1899. um, And Kipling wrote this poem, sent it to them and said, use this as you see fit to raise as much money as you can. And so they did. And all the proceeds that were raised from it went to the war effort, but it really took off. It was a sensation. So it was a music hall anthem. Arthur Sullivan of Gilbert and Sullivan put music to it and people bloody loved it.
3: Cool. Yeah. He did a lot of that kind of... um writing writing with a slight element of influencing public opinion behind it as in he was a campaigner he seemed to um dislike a lot of things and a lot of people um <laughs> so you know that's um people he is viewed variously as either a really you know these days extremely old fashioned jingoistic imperialist colonialist racist lots and lots of you know heavy criticism kind of kicked off by george orwell who pointed out that people have been hating kipling pretty much since he was writing, since he was really popular, lots of people have really <laughs> disliked um, Rudyard Kipling. But then again, he, you know, he also has written these fabulous books, which are very observant about human nature and all this stuff. So it kind of keeps the reputation going. Um, But one of the things that he wrote was the phrase known unto God, which went on gravestones of unidentified servicemen after the war ended. And that he was, mm. you know, after he lost his only son in the first world war and he was on the imperial war graves commission he played a big role in that and that was the phrase that uh, that he yeah. thought was most fitting
2: he was um he was always arguing that rich families shouldn't be able to erect loads of statues to their own children uh because he thought that everyone who died in the war really should have an equal remembrance uh and that was a huge thing there was like those family called the Cecils who were like one of the richest families in the whole of uh, britain and he really stood up against them because they wanted to do these statues and he was like nah everyone should have the same Wow, oh, hey. that's yeah. interesting Uh, But yeah, he was a massive racist. So um, (laughs) that's another (laughs) thing. I mean, he really he was a white supremacist. So, yeah, Yeah.
1: he's such an interesting character. So he his first language is Hindi, uh, born in India, of course, like first years in India and said apparently he wasn't very good at English when he learned it because they learned it in translation from Hindi. So you'd learn it in like a really stilted sing song way. And he said that when he came to Britain. So he came to Britain when he was about six and was sent away by his parents. And then he returned to India when he was 17. And he wrote that when he returned, he found himself speaking in vernacular sentences whose meaning I knew not. He just found words coming out of his mouth that he remembered oh. from his childhood, not even knowing what he was saying, wow. apparently. Wow. Bizarre.
3: Yeah, he came up with the, the phrase the oldest pro- profession to mean prostitution. So lots of people said Oh, that's yeah, the oldest profession. But before Kipling, they were talking about lots of different professions. So there was, you know, tailors uh, were described as the oldest profession. That's probably the first time anyone said this is the oldest profession. So That's the oldest, oldest profession. Uh, murderers were claimed as being the oldest profession, <laughs> arguably not a profession, but still. And there was this weird crossover period where lots of people were still quite innocent of the phrase, So, but were using it. And then other people would think... Well, I'm not sure that's what you mean. So, graduating cadets might be told, "You are now entering the oldest profession in the world," and not, you know, the old buffer who was doing the ceremony
0: might not realise what he was saying. So, that was a bit. apparently he coined a few other terms and words. Um, so, some of the words include lunchless. Hmm. Yeah, and, classic. Um, that that describes someone who has no lunch. Yep. Brilliant. Uh, just yep. for, God, he so was you was know, a genius wasn't uh, he? A genius of coining words. He was. Apparently, he coined righto. Apparently that's his. That's the first is first it? use of righto.' Oh, that's in, uh, biggie, one
3: of his- It
0: is for it's you, easy, Andy, yeah.
3: but yeah. <laughs> most people don't use it quite as often as you do.
0: I, the sun <laughs> rarely sets on a day when I haven't said <laughs> righto at least a few times. <laughs> <laughs> squidgy as well and stinky. Uh,
1: did he do? Because he, I know he he coined "squiggly" as well, and it seems like a cheat to coin "squidgy" and "squiggly." I don't know if you count one if you've done the other.
2: Oh, they're that's very true. different words, aren't they? One of them describes something that's soft and the other one describes something that goes in lots of directions.
1: Yeah. That's a good point, Ash. You
2: they're wouldn't
3: say I've just enjoyed a, a lovely, moist, squiggly bit of sponge cake, would you? No, you wouldn't no. say I've just drawn a squidgy line. No. <laughs> 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 but we all say, Righto. <laughs> <laughs> he was so famous that towns named themselves after him. Um, so there were two towns in, I think, Michigan which named themselves Rudyard and Kipling after him. Really? Um, and there's a place in Saskatchewan called Kipling. And that is an interesting place for us because it's the town where a Canadian blogger called Kyle MacDonald traded his way from a paperclip up to a house. Do you remember this guy? <laughs> yeah.
2: I do, yeah. Yeah, he
3: started with a paperclip. He traded it for loads and loads of things. This was in about the early 2000s. And he ended up with a house in Kipling. And the town now has to- commemorated it with the world's largest paperclip. They've got a 50-foot paperclip to commemorate that. That's (laughs) cool.
1: cool. Well, of course, as we said before, he was named after a place, a place where his parents met, Rudyard Lake. Mm. Also quite an interesting place because that was a massive tourist attraction. So that's a lake in Staffordshire. And... I discovered that, as well as being uh, the reason that Rudyard's called Rudyard, it was also the place where the African Blondin, as he called himself, a guy called Carlos Trauer, in 1864, walked a tightrope 100 feet up above the lake. Wow. And it sounds great. And thousands of people used to go to this place every day, apparently. So I think apparently 20,000 visitors a day would visit this tourist attraction at its peak. And they watched him, and he did it carrying an 11-year-old boy he did it backwards and forwards with his hands and feet shackled, which I've got no idea how you walk a tightrope <laughs> like that. And then at one point he was in the middle of the tightrope above the lake, and then he went back to the edge, picked up a stove, brought it back to the middle, and cooked himself ham and eggs. Which I don't oh, I, nice. I also don't know how you cook on a stove in the middle of a tightrope. Isn't isn't he the guy who
0: he did Niagara Falls as well, That's isn't Blondin.
1: he? Blondin. Did Falls, Blondin did Niagara Falls. So yeah, yeah. He, he named himself. What's after this Blondin. guy's name?
0: oh great okay yeah about because blondin also cooked in his mm. uh walks as well didn't he so he's a total tribute act yeah that's really cool he's a tribute yeah. act but over a
2: lake in staffordshire as opposed to <laughs> over niagara falls <laughs> which i don't know i really like staffordshire as a county but i'm not sure it has quite the same gravitas it's not got no.
0: it yeah but if, um, if you you're a if you're a tribute band you don't play the o2 you play the uh well, the, the arms yeah, you know yeah you're not yeah
3: no but there is another thing that happened at lake rudyard which is that matthew webb who the first person to swim the English uh, Channel? Yeah. He went to Lake Rudyard to host a grand aquatic fete where he recreated his Channel swim <laughs> again. I have no idea how impressive that would have actually been.
0: How, watching what? him
3: to splash around in a lake for a bit. Yeah. What
2: I wonder what the difference is between recreating a swim across the channel and just swimming. Like, well, how does he make? How does he make it? Does he put like a cross-channel ferry next to him, or
3: or what? No, like, you're absolutely right. There's a, the details are frustratingly vague because mm. this was 18, you'd have to
1: make have yeah. people generate waves. He probably had lots of people in there kicking and splashing because yeah. it's very strong currents. And put put a few
3: poos in there, out. put a few.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure they had them. Twenty thousand visitors, James. Some of those tourists are kids. <laughs> That's um, true. Um. <laughs> Kipling,
2: often associated with swastikas, because he was um, very much into them, obviously growing up in India, and they were a symbol of uh, peace, etc., until those dastardly Nazis got in on the act in the 30s. But there was a guy in 1984 called Tom Driver who ran a bookshop, and he wrote to the Kipling Journal. Um, saying that whenever anyone comes into his shop, all they ask about is Kipling and the swastikas. Because they had lots of old editions, and the old editions of Kipling all had the swastika on them, and then later editions didn't have them anymore, of course. Uh, And he said, we have recently kept a record, and we average once a day when a visitor asks us some question about Kipling and the swastika. Usually at the back of it is a thought that Kipling was a Nazi. Uh, And he said Mm. that they always tell them that you know, that this is an old peace sign and that's it. And he said, yeah, but that's what basically every single day someone was coming in that saying, is why are the swastikas on this? Really? I've got
3: a couple of um, pre-1933 mm. Kiplings and they have the swastika on them. Yeah, well, I did my dissertation on Kipling. So, yeah. So, oh, you know. wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: Oh, you um, didn't let on. That's sort of a, sort of, of cheating, isn't it?
3: Sorry, yeah.
1: Very much cheating in advance in preparation for this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> It didn't right. me Well,
2: um, next week we'll be doing scanning tunneling
0: microscopes, <laughs> um, which was what my dissertation was on. <laughs> good luck. Okay, it is time for fact number three, and that is Andy. My fact is that when
3: McDonald's launched the filet fish sandwich, its main competition was the Hula Burger, which was a slice of pineapple in a bun with cheese. Yeah. Um, yeah. This it wasn't was, popular. It was- it was so unpopular. Um, basically, there was a bit of uh, Cincinnati where 87% of the population were Catholic and as a result, didn't eat meat on Fridays. Mm. And um, as a result, the Cincinnati McDonald's took zero money on Fridays because they didn't have any alternatives to their you know, their burgers. And the owner said, right, I have come up with an idea called the filet of fish sandwich. It's going to revolutionize the way we trade on Fridays. It's going to be great. And he really needed this because he was a kind of franchise holder. So he needed the business to earn money. And Ray Kroc... The founder said, he said in quotes, you're always coming up here with a bunch of crap. Didn't like the idea for the Filio Fish. Said, <laughs> my idea my is idea's much better. The Hula Burger. We'll take a slice of pineapple, we'll grill it, put some cheese on it, put it in a bun. Sportingly, Bray didn't just steamroller the owner who was called Lou Grun. He said, look, right, we'll have a competition. Good Friday, 1962. Demand for meat going to be very, very low because of all the Christians. So we will stock both in certain stores on a given day and we will see who wins. And the filet fish sold 350, and the Hula Burger sold 6. And so <laughs> wow. they went with the filet fish
1: And when did you say this was?
3: This was 62.
1: So this was really the heyday of pineapple and cheese being a fashionable dish. And even then.
3: Mm. Yeah, you're right. Mm. The canapes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It just didn't work. Wow. Yeah. No.
0: You've got to put it on a stick. I mean, it sounds good to me. Does it sound bad to you guys? I, I, I wouldn't mind. A it didn't sound like filling. I think. Burger.
2: I, I think. think the problem is the slightly grainy texture of the bread with the smooth texture of the pineapple. I'm really one of my biggest fads is textures. I really struggle with certain textures, and I think that would that would really be the main good. problem. Yeah. Interesting.
3: That might be why you hate mushrooms so much because they do have a very distinctive that is why, texture. Me, yeah. Meat jelly stuff like that. I can't can't Ooh, deal yeah. with that. Oh that's I didn't know that you did not like meat jelly that's pie's ruined for you.
2: It's basically all of Russian cuisine ruined for me as well. <laughs> it's like yeah I think jelly should be sweet personally. I and I think my
1: McDonald's should be savory. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you're on the fillet of fish side. I think I Do am think, really. Yeah. Cuz I think Dan even though I agree with you look if someone put in front of me pineapple and cheese in a bun I would eat it but if someone gave me the choice I'd definitely go fillet of fish. Do you think you'd choose the pineapple?
0: No, no. I'm just saying there's a lot of options on the menu, Mm. and um, it doesn't stick out as a weird McDonald's one for me. It just might not be as popular as one of their biggest, most popular burgers. Also,
2: Catholics tend to eat fish on Fridays as opposed to eating pineapples on Fridays. So if it was for the Catholics. Yeah. mm, You're you're right. I see that now. Yeah. yeah. You don't see Jesus having two pineapples and 12 loaves, do
3: you? <laughs> the 5,000. He would have only fed the 200 if, he, if they'd had the choice.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but maybe that was his secret. Maybe there was another Messiah at the stall. Next <laughs> yeah. To the old
3: pineapple diet.
1: Oh, that's a cutscene from Life of Brian, surely. <laughs> but yeah, pineapples,
2: they were, I mean, they were massive, weren't they? Well, they were mm-hmm. the same size. As they are today, are similar size, but they were really popular, and it was because they were so difficult to grow, and so um, they just became really exclusive. Mm. Yeah,
3: and you couldn't grow them here. That was the th- oh, it was yeah. really hard to grow them here, wasn't it? So yeah. it was a code. It was a sort of code that you were incredibly wealthy, and yeah. so you can kind of date whole bits of. Um, you know, British design and architecture to when they were built, because if it's got a pineapple on, it's probably from that time in the 18th century <laughs> that everyone was obsessed with pineapples. So Gateposts cool. and railings, yeah. And uh, wow. But all of this stuff, by the way, I just want to
2: give a shout out to Fran Bowman's book, which is called "The Pineapple yeah. King of Fruits," which is possibly my favorite book on a single tiny weird subject that I've ever read in my entire life. So people should definitely read it. Um, but she basically says that once you learn how amazingly popular pineapples were for this short time, wherever you go, you'll start seeing pineapples because like Candy says, they're absolutely everywhere.
1: Yeah, it's
3: really sad. And
1: like, I, I can't believe we've never said before, but people used to rent them. So if you couldn't afford them, which uh, a lot of people couldn't. So there was a, again, it was a brief time. I think it was the start of the 18th century. Um, they would cost sort of £10,000 in today's money, as much as a carriage. So you'd rent one for a night and you'd carry it around like a bag or you'd put it on your table if you're hosting a your dinner party. And someone, I think it was Fran Bowman, who pointed out it was terrifying if you were the servant who had to transport the pineapple around because that's the equivalent of carrying a briefcase stuffed with banknotes. Yeah, yeah.
3: but who's going to know that you've got a pineapple under your cloak? It's not <laughs> it's... you wouldn't just randomly mug someone in the hope that they'd have a pineapple. That's jackpot for the mugger.
0: Didn't people used to? Didn't the rich used to hire people to sleep with their pineapples? Was that a thing? Am Stop I making it. that up? Yeah, yeah, they used to for what purpose? To protect their pineapples at night. Um, oh. Yeah, from any poachers or any them? animals. Yeah, exactly. If you were growing them,
1: yeah. I, what do you say? Am I making that up? Have you re- have you read that somewhere?
0: We don't know if you're making it up. Well, I was, I, I read Fran Bowman's book years and years ago, um, and it's a memory from that. James just bringing that up. Yeah, uh, okay.
2: I know um, Charles II used to sleep with a pineapple. Um, definitely. He'd, sleep, he with have, anything, He'd well, sleep with anything though. sleep with anything, he was a with randy a devil. Yeah. Um, what? No, what? what? Well, you know, his mistress, Barbara Villiers, he called her my sweet pineapple. Okay. okay. Uh, so yeah, he slept with a pineapple. And Barbara Villiers amazing, isn't she? Like she was like, um, she kind of became the king's like favorite mistress. Uh, and then after the king died, she just went completely off the rails. Uh, and at one stage, the absolute worst thing that she did was um, biting the penis off a recently exhumed bishop. Which, <laughs> okay. I think as far as going off the rails is concerned, I mean, Pete Doherty's got a Sorry. lot
3: to learn, hasn't he?
1: <laughs> what if he's run out of pineapple?
3: <laughs> Charles II, he also commissioned a painting of himself being given a pineapple by his gardener. That's how much he loved pineapples. Mm. And it was kind of to prove a point. So he ordered a pineapple because the French ambassador was there and... um Barbados was an English colony at the time, and they were arguing over who got to own the nearby island of St. Kitts. And he was mm. basically asserting primacy because you could grow pineapples in Barbados. And he was saying, look, we can do this with our pineapples here. So it makes sense that we should have this neighbouring bit of land as well. Okay. And that, I think that was why he commissioned a painting of himself just getting a pineapple off his gardener.
1: Right. <laughs> <Nice. laughs> wow. It was a bit of an yeah. art purest. Mm. I was thinking how awful it must have been when the very first king received pineapple. That was King Ferdinand. So pineapple was brought to Europe uh, after Columbus's voyages, the late 15th century. And uh, King Ferdinand of Spain was the first person to eat one. And he said the flavour exceeds all other fruit. But um, it was the only one that survived the trip. And so imagine how awful that is. You know, when you run out of something delicious and you have to go back to the Uh, shop.
2: Oh, yeah. It's
1: the most delicious thing you've ever tasted in your life. And that's it yeah
2: because they all like he did have loads of them but they all just all ended up squishy and rotten didn't they apart yeah. from one of them which makes me think that perhaps the one probably wasn't in the absolute best condition if all the others have got it's a bit like the washing on your line going dry if all the others are rotten then that one's probably a bit rotten as well
3: all yeah. the others went squidgy but this one happened to go squiggly just <laughs> due to Weird. Um, you do a typo. have you guys ever been on a cruise
0: yep no okay
3: so james you're the only one who's been on the cruise when you were on the cruise mm. did you ever see on anyone else's door a sticker with the pineapple on it
2: no i didn't go on a very high class cruise it has to be said oh that's fine because this doesn't
3: apply on high class cruise, oh, so. <laughs> this is the <laughs> there is a, a myth among the cruising community that this indicates or if someone has a pineapple magnet or whatever or something oh, on the yeah. door, that they are swingers and they are interested in is that a
2: right time. Mm. but well it, I, I i was i because when i went on the cruise the whole time i was sat on the deck reading fran bowman's book about pineapples so god knows what <laughs> they all thought of me <laughs> <laughs> um
3: yeah it's the thing is the system is a poor one because mm. obviously I mean, assuming it, this is not complete bollocks, which it may well be. But you would only see a few doors, don't you? Because you normally, you know, you have yeah. your corridor and then you go up to the Yeah,
2: but if you're way. a swinger, you probably check in a few more doors than the average person, aren't you? That's a good I point. I think so.
3: Yeah.
1: You walk up a couple of corridors.
2: But you don't know
3: who's behind the door either. I mean, the worst thing would be if you've got the sticker on your door and someone knocks on the door, you open it and they say, oh, sorry, I think I've got the wrong... <laughs> sorry nothing never mind (laughs) you probably
2: dress as like a i was gonna say cabin boy but more like a waiter or something and so you have the out like if if they knock on the door and you don't fancy them you can say oh sorry i just come to collect your room service that's good
3: that's it's a that's i think the best possible solution but that feels like a long now you've got to pack your cabin boy outfit when you're going on
1: a cruise. <laughs> I just think so many things have to like come together at once to make this work that I can't believe it's ever happened in the history of the universe. It's like you have to be there have to be other swingers on the boat, you have to be on the right corridor, you have to know about the pineapple rule, and they have to be attractive enough for you to accept. Yeah. Do we As if anyone's listening if you've ever had a successful <laughs> pineapple-based cruise experience? We want to hear about
0: it. Yeah. Hey, um, I was looking into other ways of presenting pineapple for meals and I came across a dessert I've never heard of before. Have you guys heard of candle salad? You ever had a candle salad?
1: No,
2: I haven't.
0: Um, I'm
1: part of the electric generation, so I just (laughs) plug my salad in at the wall.
0: (laughs) So candle salad, it's a a fruit salad, um, although you do have lettuce in it as well as the base. But the idea is you take a ring of pineapple And you place through the ring of pineapple Mm. at the base, a banana, a peeled banana, (laughs) so it sits up. I can see why the swingers would like this kind of thing. (laughs) It has a red cherry on the top. And then... and. By the way, this supposedly is for children. This is a great way to get kids to eat fruit. It's got this cherry on the top. It's a banana sticking up through the pineapple. And uh, you use either mayonnaise on it or cottage cheese. Come on, though.
1: Dad, you you do not put mayonnaise on it.
0: Someone's having you on here, Dan. I swear to God, you put it on and you put it right at the tip of the banana. (laughs) It's a real thing. It's a kids' food, and it looks like where, a like erect penis? <laughs> <laughs> That's just orgasm. Stop feeding this
2: to
3: your children. Yeah, man. come on, Dan. Where, which soft play area have you been to where they give you this halfway through? Dan is no longer allowed to go to any children's <laughs> soft play area. What?
2: Where are you getting it from? Like, it's not. I I never saw this in my childhood. Put it this way. It was, and I was.
0: I was a Catholic. it was big in the 1920s in america um and it's still it still is around and if you google it there's plenty of pictures people love popping their pictures up to show you (laughs) how their how their candle salad looks and you know it has a full-on wikipedia article telling about its (laughs) history it's it's a real thing
1: everything's got a wikipedia article mate there's always some nut job (laughs) out there willing to write a wikipedia article how do you balance a cherry on a banana
2: with Oh, that's that easy. Potted cream or whatever it was.
1: Yeah, with mayonnaise. With mayonnaise. mayonnaise. James, mayonnaise. Sorry. That's the implausible <laughs> bit. I was just trying to think of anything seemingly. <laughs> I can't remember what it was. Cottage cheese makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Cottage cheese famously goes with pineapple. Yeah. Mayonnaise. Like I say, stop feeding it to your piss.
0: okay it is time for our final fact of the show and that is james
2: okay my fact this week is that there is a professional footballer called naughty naughty he has never been sent off <laughs> <laughs> i mean the headline that could have been Naughty uh, well, naughty yeah. naughty might, naughty might still be because he's very young oh, okay. um well he is young compared to me he was born in 1994 how, oh, how old young. does that make it? Yeah, he's pretty. That he's he's in his, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so, basically, this guy, i known about him for a little while. Uh, he was played for Chelsea as a youth player. Uh, and then he's played for a few non-league teams like Charlie and Dover. Um, but recently, he's gone to play for Queen of the South in Scotland. Uh, and last week, he scored against Inverness Caledonian Thistle. And I was watching Gillette Soccer Saturday with Jeff Stelling. Uh, and Jeff Stelling said that this guy called Naughty Naughty had never been sent off. And I checked, and as far as I could see, it's true. And, you know, we get a lot of our facts from books or from scientific papers or stuff like this, and I just thought, why can't you get facts from Gillette Soccer Saturday on Sky Sports? Quite right. <laughs> facts, you can find facts anywhere, can't you?
1: I've always said there should be an no- opposite of normative determinism. I reckon I've said this in the podcast, and mm. if he's not evidence of that, yes. then I don't know what is.
3: Yeah. Um. So I'm... Football was being sent off. Oh, yeah. So I thought naughty, naughty never has been. There have been some wonderful sendings off in the history <laughs> of English football. My God. So I, the earliest ever sending off um, was a Sunday league match in 2000. And it was between... Cross Farm Park Celtic and Taunton East Reach Wanderers, right? The referee blew his whistle at the start of the match, very close to a player called Lee Todd, who was a part-time bricklayer who had his back turned. The ref blew his whistle very, very loud. Todd, Todd exclaimed, fuck me, that was loud. The referee stopped the game <laughs> two seconds in and sent him off for abusive language. <laughs> and he, I, it's, it's just a glorious story. Like, there are so many crunchy details about it. Like, he was also banned for 35 days and fined £27.
2: 27. Really? But, 27 but then in the meeting about that he went fuck me that's not very much
0: <laughs> <laughs> went,
3: another 35 days mate and his, his he was tracked down 20 years after this match last year he was tracked down by the website Sport Bible and he's still slightly annoyed uh, about it
1: he said fuck me I mean if anything he was wearing it himself
2: true yeah yeah, yeah. unless it yeah. could like, maybe the referee took it as a request oh yeah,
0: oh, been, yeah. yeah. he yeah. did have a pineapple sticker actually on <laughs> the back of his shirt <laughs> do you know what the record for being booked with a yellow card is how mm. quickly that was done oh. uh it was three seconds and that was <laughs> vinnie jones who most people globally will know as an actor uh, but used to be a professional footballer yeah he was booked after three seconds um and he beat the previous record for a yellow card by two seconds so it was a five second was the previous record and that was held by vinnie jones <laughs> so they smashed the same record. Yeah, the uh, red card was invented by referee Ken Aston
2: uh, after the nineteen sixty six World Cup. You could be sent off before then, but they didn't have card system uh, because. And um, what happened was in the quarter final um, of the World Cup, which was between England and I think Argentina. Um, it said in the newspapers the next day that both of the Charlton brothers had been booked but they didn't remember it happening. <laughs> and so England went to the, um, to FIFA and said, it says in the newspapers that we've been booked, but we have no idea what happened. Uh, and it turned out they had been and they hadn't noticed. But then Ken Aston, having seen this happen, thought, well, we need a more obvious symbol of someone being sent off. And apparently he was driving down Kensington High Street and he saw a traffic light. And the yellow, he thought, meant take it easy and the red is to stop. And so he thought, well, that's a good idea. Let's have yellow and red cards. So I guess the traffic lights aren't yellow; they're amber, are they? So they should be amber and red cards, maybe. Mm.
3: Call mm. it. amber. But it's a re- yeah. it's literally a light bulb moment because what do you have in traffic lights? Yes, you have light bulbs. It's, it's light, light bulbs. <laughs> but it's also a, a, an extremely obvious theft to us now, as in it's, it's so obvious that I don't know. It's... <laughs>
1: what do you mean to get to get red and yellow and green?
3: Well, well, I heard about that. Thing. Ken Astor. you should be given a. Everyone should be given a green card at the start of the match. That well, would be a really nice. Well, that
1: into America. <laughs>
2: <laughs> that was before the 1994 World Cup in America. They all had to have a green card. <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> in the match with the most ever red cards given, mm. only one person was sent off.
2: Oh, why? Really me
1: That. <laughs> uh,
3: this um, was. Anna's quite... riddle corner. His opening business. <laughs>
2: It was Valentine's Day and they all got a load of red cards which said Happy Valentine's Day on them
1: that's Lovely. the oh it's such a good answer james and i'm gonna give you a bonus point for yes. that but it's not correct okay. um 36 people got red cards but it was in 2011 <sighs> and it's vaguely famous the referee was this guy called damian rubino and one player was sent off in the first half because uh, he just got two yellows and he came returned in the second half to stand in the crowd in his home clothes and cheer the teams on and then at the end of the match this guy had been sent off in the first half came onto the pitch and just punched one of the opposition players in the face for reasons unknown to anyone but this huge brawl started so everyone chased him he fled to the locker room everyone's favorite place to be and then there was a big fight in there and then they came back out into the pitch big fight there and eventually the referees gave red cards to everyone on both teams plus all subs plus a coach or two as well but he was into he's been interviewed this ref and he was like i've got no idea why this guy just jumped out of the stands went and punched someone in the face. And years later, he bumped into him at another match. And the guy said, sorry about that incident. We actually had some personal beef off the pitch. Uh, I don't want to talk about, but yeah. uh, We never know what it was. We'll never know. You can only speculate. Yeah. A woman. It's got to be about a (laughs) woman.
2: Um, The first woman to ever be sent off in an official football match for fighting was called Lily Parr. Um, She is very famous. She played for the um, Dick Kerr ladies, uh, who are some factory workers from Preston, who we might have mentioned before, actually. Yeah,
1: we must have. Probably
2: the most successful women's team of all time. Uh, Anyway, she had a shot that was so hard, she once broke the arm of a professional male goalkeeper. <laughs> uh, that's how good she was. <laughs> she scored more than a thousand goals during her career. More than a thousand goals, uh, thirty-four of which were in her first season when she was only fourteen years old. Oh wow! How
1: good does she sound? Yeah. What a prodigy! Amazing. They did used to play with bowling balls back then, didn't they? so much <laughs> yeah. easier to break an arm.
3: Is is Nanny a famous player? Yeah, yeah, played for L- United. Lewis. Luis de Cunha is his his name, and nanny's his name. He's played for United, as James says. In 2013, he was sent off in a match against Real Madrid. And watching at home, one of the United fans was so outraged and enraged by this that he phoned the police. He called 999. (laughs) 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 And... <laughs> he, he he was a young lad, I think. He called. He was just so angry about the setting off. He thought a crime has been committed. And then <laughs> the uh, police
2: turned up, and the car was going Nanny, nanny, nani. nani, nani. <laughs> um,
1: <laughs> if he uh, didn't get a red for time wasting, then that's. He,
2: he
3: apologized later on. He said it was. He said it, it was bad judgment to phone, God, the, phone so the old bill. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: um, I found a naughty manager, naughty football manager. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Someone very famous, Jose Mourinho. So Jose Mourinho was given a two-match ban once um, and he found that horrible because he wasn't able to consult with his team in the uh, locker rooms. So he snuck in and he managed to give his team a big talk. But then the problem was he got in there early, so he wasn't seen. But by the time he'd finished with his team, the whole place was crowded with UEFA people and, and he needed to somehow get out. So they popped a kit man popped Jose Mourinho in a laundry basket. <laughs> no, <laughs> and wheeled no. yeah, That's and amazing. and wheeled him out so that he he left a sort of the lid bit of it open so that he was fine he could breathe. But suddenly when they were in the in the sort of corridors they could hear UEFA people and he got really nervous. The kit guy got really nervous, so he slammed the lid down on top of the laundry basket. Problem is, is Mourinho is claustrophobic and freaked out inside. <laughs> And he thought he was dying and he was just thrashing about. And and eventually when they got out, they opened it and he was like, <gasps> and came out and it was a big scene for him. But, yeah.
2: The problem was he ended up on the Isle of Wight and Queen Victoria was like, who the hell are you? <laughs> such a good story. Incredible.
1: Wow. Did you also have that as research for the laundry section?
0: I did. Yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, you got to double that up.
3: Um, James and Anna, I think it's fair to say that you're the two of this podcasting team who are more interested in football mm. Yeah, if we're that's ranking. Really well, Anna's yeah, a Newcastle fine. fan, but, you know. Not far
1: <laughs> yeah, you can't really call it football now. I can admit that. And yeah. that's from a Tranmere fan over there.
3: <laughs> okay, well, I'm going to look up all these references later, so thanks for those. But um, are you guys familiar with the, the idea that it's harder to play against 10 men than yeah. 11? Yeah. Is this a thing it's, that people say? Like
2: people say it. Usually, you're expected to win against ten men because yeah. they have one fewer player. But mm. a lot of teams do struggle.
3: Interesting. Yeah. Okay. I've
1: never. Is it the psychology of it?
3: Well, it's either that or uh, this is just from what I've read. It's that a team with ten players retreats and so they're going to be guarding the yep, goal very carefully happens. and all of this. Yep. But anyway, it's been studied and it's absolutely nonsense. It's much easier to win, <laughs> score more points and more goals against ten men than it is against eleven. The stats. That's what the stats
2: say. Makes more sense to know. Yeah, Yeah. it's pretty hard to play against 15 men. Uh, This was a problem that Arsenal had in a game against Dynamo Moscow in 1945. It was a friendly game. Uh, So not too bad, but it was played in extremely heavy fog so that no one could really see what was happening on the pitch. Uh, And at one stage, the Moscow Dinamo played, uh, made a substitution, but they didn't take a player off. They just brought someone on, uh, but no one noticed. Uh, And (laughs) fans who are watching reckon at one stage, they had 15 players on the pitch at one stage. Uh, Arsenal had a player sent off and the player snuck back onto the pitch. (laughs) for the rest of the game <laughs> uh, and in the end Arsenal lost 4-3 um, but probably one of the reasons was because their goalkeeper knocked himself out accidentally running into a goalpost <laughs> which he couldn't see because of the fog <laughs> oh
0: okay that's it that is all of our facts thank you so much for listening if you would like to get in contact with any of us about the things that we have said over the course of this podcast we can be found on our Twitter account I'm on at Schreiberland Andy at andrew hunter m james at james harkin and anna you can email podcast at qi.com yep or you can go to our group account which is at no such thing or our website no such thing as a check out all of our previous episodes up there as well as old bits of merchandise that we're still flogging away and um yeah we will be back again next week with another episode we will see you then goodbye